Welcome to Banking Transform, the top podcast in retail banking. I'm your host, Jim Roos. As we stand at the brink of 2024, it's important to unravel the seismic shifts poised to redefine the industry over the next year and beyond. Digital disruption, shifting consumer behaviors, emerging technologies, and evolving regulations are combining to completely reshape the industry at dizzying speeds. I'm joined in the Banking Transform podcast by Brett King, a friend and a trailblazer whose foresight has continually heralded the next wave of financial innovation. Together, we dissect the advancements and upheavals that will reshape the banking world in 2024 and also peer into the future, envisioning what banking may look like as we approach the dawn of 2030. More than ever, bankers must understand these trends and harness the opportunities ahead in order to be able to thrive as we look in the future. As I often say, changes never happen this fast and will never happen this slowly again. In just the next year, we expect to see rapid developments from open banking adoption to new AI applications. Looking out to 2030, the landscape may be almost unrecognizable compared to today. And there's no better person to talk to about the future as it may be in in banking than Brett King. You know, Brett, you've been such an astute voice predicting the future of finance. What emerging technologies like AI and and automation do you see having the biggest impact on reshaping retail banking over the next uh, five years? Oh, wow. Um, well, you know, all, all the technology that's coming into the space right now, AI is is going to disrupt not just banking, of course, but, you know, a ton of industries and, you know, disrupt our way of life in, in many ways, um, you know, for the better in most cases, but, um, you know, there's some new paradigms, you know, that we're going to have to adjust to. Um, but AI, you know, it, you, you know, I've talked about um, the technological impact on banking and i have a series of books i've written on that so you know i talk about bank 1.0 being the traditional era bank 2 being the self-service era where we extended branch operations to atm machines call centers and then eventually uh, you know basic internet banking then the bank 3 era which is uh, you know the era most banks are in today which is where we have mobile mobile app-based banking and this produced a sort of whole suite of new startups in the space fintechs that we call them today um that uh, have gained massive market share um you know we just saw you know wise's results this week which are very impressive um you know uh, and then the bank four era where, where we're going into right now is the era of embedded banking yeah. And so buy now, pay later and things like that are examples of that. But so is the the fact that more people use a mobile wallet today to bank than they do a traditional bank account, which is something that's happened almost, uh, you know, without the banking industry even noticing, you know. Um, and, and then the, the fifth error, which I haven't really talked about broadly in the market yet, is bank, bank 5.0 is AI-based banking. And so to illustrate that, you know, and that's a trajectory we're on. So Bank 5.0 is sort of around the 2050 era, but it's starting now, right? And so to illustrate, JP Morgan Chase, you know, today has, what, 180,000 employees globally. Um, So what does JP Morgan Chase look like as a Bank 5.0? Maybe 2,000 employees and the rest is AI, right? And And, so that's bigger and bigger. Right. Yeah. Right. And so that's the trajectory we're on. And, you know, so you've now got the consumer experience stuff happening and AI is going to be part of that, the personal AI. And then, then we have the era of this truly smart bank account where your AI helps you manage your money. And then we have the era of the, the bank as an algorithm, you know, or a set of algorithms. You know, you know, it's interesting because in the past, you know, I've been in banking for 40 years now, but in the past, you know, consumers pretty much accepted what banks provided them. You know, the banking industry didn't move very fast, but neither did the consumer. They took care of trust. They took care of branding, all those elements. But we've seen major shifts in what consumers expect today. And it's because of not just what's happening in banking, but what's happened outside banking. Of course, And, And the gap has really got to the point where the consumers are actually ahead of where the banking industry is, where regulation is, and where everything else is playing catch up. I'm wondering, how big is the gap 
between consumer expectations and current bank capabilities in the legacy banking sector? Uh, well, um, you know, if a bank asks you to sign a piece of paper ever, that's the biggest example of that expectation gap, you know? Um, and, and so, you know, you still have that embedded in a lot of banking practices. There's still the expectation, you know, from, from many banks, particularly in, in places like the United States where, well, you know, if you want a real banker, you have to go and speak to them face to face and, you know, find a parking spot at the branch and sign a piece of paper. Um, you know, and, and banks that rely on that type of activity are, you know, obviously have been shrinking fairly, um, you know, uh, you know, I guess at a fair clip over the last, uh, yeah. um, you know, a few years. So that's the that's the immediate thing is that it, as a customer, I want to make it as easy as possible for you to execute on what you need to do. And the more friction I put in the way of you, then the harder it is for me to retain you, to keep engaging with you and so forth. So I don't, um, you know, I don't call KYC, know your customer. When yeah. it comes to the paper, I call it kill your customer, right? Oh, you're you know, those exactly right, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then if you look at the other overarching expectation, it's, it's informational. And that comes from lots of areas in our life, right? And I should be able to know exactly how much money I have, whether I'm spending it well, all of those sorts of things, that, those feedback loops around how I'm using my money. And so mobile wallets do a far better job of this than traditional banking apps. Um, you know, so categorization, um, showing you uh, predictive uh, cash flow analytics, all of those sorts of things. You know, these are some of the features we see in these wallets. And, you know, lending as a result is changing. It's shifting towards wallets in these markets or, you know, the super apps, um, you know, and so forth. So in, in China, 40% of SME lending now is on the Alipay uh, platform, you know, and that's yeah. a massive shift. Yeah, and and it's interesting because we, we talked about it actually yesterday on a on a podcast that you hosted. Um, that the reality is that one of the many things are holding the financial institutions back. A lot of it is legacy thinking, but even legacy processes. Like we talked about the difference between managing risks versus actually avoiding risks. And most financial institutions in the United States, and in many parts of the the modern banking world, still try to avoid risk, which makes us see have a limited customer base you can serve, while, as you mentioned, in China, you have organizations like WeBank can serve virtually everybody because what they use is their, their way of deciding whether or not to serve a customer is their transactions on their mobile device. You know, they, they, can, they can manage to say who's going to go bad, which is all they try to avoid, as opposed to how good is a customer going to be. And, mm. and through the masses, they can make it work. And, you know, when you look at it, you, you look at generative AI and AI in general, it really is making a lot of things more possible. How do you see, as you're going around the world, how do you see organizations really changing the way they do banking based on generative AI or just AI in general right now? You mean banks or you mean? Banks, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, on the generative AI, AI stuff, um, I think – you know, there, there is not yet a really good example of generative AI in banking. And I'll, I'll tell you why, um, is when we talk about generative AI and we're talking about, um, you know, ChatGPT, MidJourney, you know, um, DALI, these sorts of programs, you know, you, you have these massive data models, which uh, enables you to extract various types of either language or art or whatever the case may be that's generated based on this AI's broad uh, data experience. So the equivalent of that in financial services would have to be the most obvious area is some sort of um, radical personalization of your banking experience, which would combine um, advice um, and would combine the ability to um, give you access to core utility of banking in a very highly or hyper-personalized manner. And so really no one is doing that uh, today, um, we are starting to see elements of artificial intelligence and data science creep into the space, but there's no one that's really cracked generative AI. And I think part of that problem is that um, you, you, you have to be embedded in the customer's life from a technology perspective in a fairly complete manner. So the only, um, you know, uh, 
I guess, architecture we have for that today is a mobile wallet on a smartphone. Um, you do have voice-based smart speakers and things like that, which could obviously be an angle for that same AI. But imagine talking to your smart wallet you know, in, in your phone and saying, Hey, how much money have I got? Can I afford to go out with my friends, you know, you know, to the, to the, uh, the football game on the weekend, you know, um, can I afford to go out for dinner on the weekend? What's, what's my available budget given my goals of saving up for a new car or saving up for a house deposit next year or whatever the case may be. And your wallet would be smart enough to answer that question or your wallet would be smart enough to give you say, Hey, um, looks like next month you've got a car insurance payment coming up and you may not be able to hit that because of your current cash flow. This is what you can do about it. So it really has to be integrated into your life in a way that banks, I'm not sure could ever really do. So that's really the gap there. Why can't they? Brad Pigott's show. You know, when I, when I look at this, I, I the data's there. Yeah. The view of the future is there. But it seems like financial institutions hold back from sharing it. I mean, Mint's being integrated into another platform. But when you look at just what a financial institution can do within their four walls, I'm not getting very much predictive ideas of what I should do in my banking from my current institution that owns enough in right. information. I to mean, do look, that. there's banks could do components of this, no problem, right? Yeah. And banks could own this part of it if they're integrated with the wallet ecosystem like Apple Pay, Google right. Pay, and so yep. forth, right? Um, yep. Because I don't, again, um, it's not, it, it's, it's a behavior, it's largely behavioral. And so there is, we do have financial behavior in, in a transactional level, but we don't have all of the other behavioral data that you'd need right. to give that. So we don't have geolocation data. We don't have, uh, um, you know, various uh, uh, psychological or behavioral triggers that sit outside of the banking system. So yeah, we do have a ton of data, but it would need to be married with something else. So this is why I talk about the ecosystem of banking experiences no longer being driven by banks. Yeah, you have the surviving banks as a component of that, but you now have the tech giants, the fintechs and the AI players who are equally as important in providing those seamless banking experiences of the future. So banks have to be integrated into that environment and banks still think in terms of primary financial institution and you coming to the bank as a customer to ask for a product yep. from the bank. And yep. that is that is the fundamental shift that occurs with this move to embedded banking through the tech layer. You know, talk about embedded banking. How will open banking trends like embedded banking and composable technologies change where and how consumers interact with financial institutions in the short term? And I'll just say in the next two to three years, how do you see this all changing? So I'm, you know, I was uh, talking with a challenger bank in, um, in fact, we did a, we, we hosted them on, on breaking banks, but, um, uh, uh, the, a company called, um, Weo, a challenger bank out of the UAE, Dubai, mm -hmm. and they've got this new feature credit plus they call, which, um, basically they can send you a message and say, you know, like, like as you walk in a grocery store and say, Hey, it looks like you don't have enough money for your groceries today. Do you want to switch into credit mode? And so you can basically switch over your wallet from your debit card to your credit mode in real time. Yeah. That's an example of where if you are still thinking about banking, like provision of credit, like a credit card as a bank, then you're going to lose out in that scenario because that's all data decisioning, right? right. So that's right. that's an example of, of something today. An example I give in, I gave in Bank 4, um, you know, the book that came out in 2018, was um, mortgage shopping. And so how does a bank today know if you are going to buy a home or you're interested in buying a home? Um, how it is is that you know you come and ask for a mortgage and that's the first the bank knows of your intent to buy right, a home. Right. Right. But Google, Apple, you know, potentially Facebook and others, they already know you have the intent to buy a home. You know, you've done Google searches on it, Apple, you've downloaded a real estate app on your phone. So they're in an inf they have a massive informational advantage when it comes to a home financing offer. Because as you walk into a listed property, you know, a property for sale, it's a fairly safe assumption, given your search history and behavior in the past, that you're actually looking for home financing. So now I can give you that offer contextually on your phone with a notification as you walk into 
the listed real estate property, or if you walk into a Tesla dealership or something like that, the same applies saying, this is how much you can afford. And at that point, why would you go to your bank and ask for a mortgage? Right. Um, and jump through those hoops because now you have, uh, but the technology plays are sort of acting as a gateway in terms of that based on, on their uh, data and informational, um, you know, advantages. You know, it's interesting because we already have that data around auto purchase because basically when you do a, a test drive at any dealership, they do a, a ping on your credit bureau to make sure that you'll be able to buy what you're driving. Um, that, that doesn't show up in a credit bureau, but that data is available. And in fact, if you do a test drive, that's why we get all these ads from dealers and manufacturers around cars. Yet for the most part, financial institutions take, don't take advantage of that same data yeah, to offer yeah. something on a proactive basis. What holds financial institutions back from using the data that is available to be my mm. GPS of financial service? What do you, what's your perspective on that? Well, there's two major issues. It's rarely technological. Um, you know, it's it's mostly culture, cultural, yep. Yep. Um, and it's mostly reinforcing the existing product silos through the organization structure. So, he, you know, for example, if I'm going to offer an alternative credit product, which is a real-time credit experience, such as the grocery experience I talked about, immediately, if you're in a major bank that issues credit cards, the credit card team is going to say, no, 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 you can't do that because that's cannibalizing our credit card business. Right. So that's the problem you get is that you sort of have this reinforcement of the existing product structures and org chart because that's the way budget flows throughout the organization. Breaking that is is extraordinarily difficult. It's really a technological issue. Yeah, it, it's interesting because we talk about I, I try to talk about the fact that buying technology will not get you out of the hole if your leadership doesn't envision what the future is going to bring. I mean, it, it sounds logical, but we play it every day. It's, it's why both of us are in business to a degree is that yeah. banking runs slower than we think it should. You know, when we're talking about speed overall, how do you see the role of speed within the ability to compete and drive digital experience excellence? I mean, you, you see both traditional and non-traditional financial institutions. You see financial institutions in the U.S. and abroad. You know, mm. we can, you know, even real-time payments, we kid about the payments industry in the United States, but we don't see all the financial institutions, even all the big financial institutions embracing and pushing real-time payments. You know, is no. it, this has got to be more than culture, doesn't it? Or is it still just culture well, that, you know, in, in, that in, gets in the way? The U.S. is sort of a unique market in that it's a very protectionist market for the oligopolies that sort of run the different industries and, you know, um, they get to write the rules, um, the regulations in respect to industry. So, you know, banking lobbyists are basically writing the rules about fintech adoption and crypto and you can see that in the U.S. because we don't have a fintech charter. You know, we're the only uh, country in the G20 that doesn't have a fintech license for a bank. Um, and that that restricts very heavily the uh, ability for challenger banks in the US to compete because you can't get a license unless you go the full license route. Um, and, and, you know, incidentally, you have to have at least a single branch, right, which no um, digital banking uh, structure uh, anywhere yeah. in the world has that right. requirement. You know, for the what's happened with the SEC going after crypto, again, that is uh, the fact that the regulations are being written to support, you know, the existing Wall Street firms and investment strategies rather than allowing this this opening up. So that's that's a, the, the biggest problem in, in the US. But you also have legacy behavior. So let's look at checks, for example. Um, you know, checks are still used, um, although they're in constant decline and have been for 20 years, yeah. checks are still used quite broadly in the US for things like payroll. And there's not an imperative for, um, you know, banks to incentivize people away from that system as yet because, you know, they still have a lot of reliance on people coming in and getting a checking account, you know, opening a checking account and so forth. So it needs to be a bit of a cultural shift there. I, I'm f increasingly frustrated by the lack of real-time payments and, and so forth that's that's here, you know, in, in the US market um, because you, you can go anywhere else in the world essentially and use your phone to pay 
you know, at least in developed economies um, and, and developing economies as well. You can go anywhere in the world and just use my, your, use your phone to send someone some cash, you know, and it's, it happens you yeah. know, seamlessly. And, and, well, it's and, interesting because the consumer in many cases feels like they do have real-time payments. Venmo and things like this give the, give the, the v- visual of having real-time payments. Oh, and you can. There, you, there are yeah. workarounds, right? right. These, right. Are, these exactly. are commercially available workarounds that work around the existing banking system right. restrictions, right? But it's not a standard, um, you know, where the U.S. has said, we're going to have real-time payments, we're mandating it, we're going to make it as cheap as possible yeah. for banks to make that switch, and we are going to do these things to phase out checks and other, you know, and the ACH, met, you know, um, payments methodologies because they those legacy systems aren't helping consumers, they're increasing fraud, et cetera, right? So, Brett, you know, we, we've seen a lot of dynamics with regard, regard to regulation. You know, how do you see the regulatory environment changing over the next few years when we're looking at things like data privacy, when we're looking at um, AI and, and the risks and bias, and when we're looking at CRA, which, sure. you know, is interesting when yeah, I yeah, talk yeah. about what's going on there. You know, we, we visited the White House in, in tw- what, 2013, 14, I mean, a long time ago. And we talked about CRA, and, and they just came out with a new regulatory um, uh decision on CRA, which looks more adequate than it did before. Do you see regulation as being a possible um, inhibitor to innovation within the United States, but even globally? And, oh, yeah. or, do, or do you see it possibly improving the innovation process? Great question. Um, so, you know, let's take CRA. Yeah. Um, the CRA law was written in 1977. Um, at the time, Star Wars was the number one movie. My first year um, in banking. Yep. Um, <laughs> and uh, Staying Alive was the number one album. And um, our view of financial inclusion was that if you wanted to increase access to credit, you the only mechanism available to do that was branches. And that got put into law, meaning that if a bank was the last bank in a town that, you know, that served a certain population of people, they couldn't remove that branch because they had a social, there was a social expectation as to financial access in that, in that city or town. Um, And so we have a large, a large portion of regulation today concerning digital banking is framed in respect to the CRA in that, well, if we create a digital banking license that doesn't require a branch, those banks that have a digital license are no longer subject to the CRA. So that's not a level playing field for the banks that are already in the United States. Um, But if you step back from that and say, if you were to think about financial inclusion in the United States today, and it's still a problem because over 20% of households in the US are financially excluded. If you were to think about financial inclusion solving that problem today, is the CRA the answer to that? And the answer is absolutely not. The answer is mobile. Right, you know, yep. we've had more financial inclusion globally out of mobile than we've ever had from bank branches. Right, um, we've had the fastest ever growth in financial inclusion as a result of of uh, mobile phones. So, um, you know, you would have to say if if the purpose of the banking system is to include as many Americans as possible, then you need CRA reform. You also need to accommodate these digital pure play mechanisms. You know to enable, uh, you know, innovation in financial inclusion to occur. So we don't have have that either. Um, the things like real-time payments and the fact that in markets like, for example, China or Latin America or, um, uh, you know, um, uh, India Africa. As, yeah. Af- and across yeah. Africa, yeah. the wallet enables now all of a, a lot of those elements mobile money in africa paytm in india you know um, gcash paymayor in the philippines etc cetera, etc cetera, right and, and so that is the us has all the data we need to know that this this uh, is um you know a solution set that's readily available but it requires an act of congress and that's as we know in the current political environment going to be very difficult particularly when you've got the bank lobbyists saying don't get rid of cra because that's going to be an unlevel playing field right um so i think you know there's definitely a, a a regulatory issue here but on the broader sense in terms of innovation um you know the us still has 
incredible resources financially to put into innovation generally through Silicon Valley, the venture capital arms and so forth. So we will probably see efforts from players like Apple Pay and others and, you know, potentially ChatGPT integration into the, the banking system as an effort to circumvent, you know, a lot of those limitations. But you also asked about identity. Yeah. So what we know today, and it might shock your listeners, particularly if they're in the US banking system, is today if you use your US-based credit card online in the US to purchase something, you have a 10,000 times higher chance of fraud than a person in China purchasing online using Alipay. I mean, it's just, and I'll give you the hard numbers because people say, oh, that's not right. You know, well, that's communism. Um, you know, <laughs> 0.0006 basis points of fraud at 500,000 transactions per second for Alipay. Um, Visa and MasterCard combined globally can do about 50,000 transactions per second, maybe a little more. And the, the uh, card not present uh, fraud rate is 11.2 basis points of fraud in the United wow. States, right? So that, those are the hard numbers. So this is, um, this is a twofold problem. Primarily it's identity is that your 16 digit card number, your CVC and, you know, the expiry date, these data points are no longer securable. Right, And so we have to, you know, we can tokenize, but that is a stopgap measure. Um, what we really need is digital identity infrastructure. We need biometrics. We need biometric heuristics, um, you know, and this is where China with the facial recognition and so forth has, uh, you know, been able to radically reduce fraud on, on the mobile payments rails. And of course, that becomes complicated because we talk about now, oh, you're going to have a Chinese system or, you know, what about civil yeah. rights and so forth? Let's put aside that, you know, um, immigration and, you know, Border Patrol already have facial recognition for passports and it's integrated. There are 600 federal databases already that use facial recognition. So let's not fool ourselves into thinking we're not using this tech. Um, you know, but at the same time, in a 21st century ecosystem, you think about the pandemic, if you want to get access to telehealth, you want to get access to tele-education services for your children. You want to get access to, you know, ongoing financial uh, services in the world of the future. It's always going to be based on digital identity. Right. You can't have all of this digital layer of services and keep paper-based identity documents, so drive or plastic-based, you know, a driver's license or a, a, a you know, a passport. Right. You you have to have digital identity infrastructure. So I would say that if you start talking about AI now. You know, if you are going to have um, an AI agent act on your behalf, the ability to tag digital identity deeply to to you and to your IA, creating a separate digital identity for your A that is is your agent. You know, that's part of the infrastructure we're going to need to keep these ecosystems safe, um, and that requires um, broad federal agreement you know, right, on right. identity standards and so forth, which I think we're a long way off from. So um, unfortunately, if, if you're in America, you are having to absorb, uh, absorb significantly higher risk and fraud rates because of the legacy uh, uh, regulation and, and legacy, you know, banking infrastructure. So you, you've talked a little bit about the competitors, about the fintechs and, and big techs. You know, what competitors or models pose the biggest threat to incumbent banks? And alternatively, what types of fintech partnerships and collaborations do you see happening in the next year and then in the future? Uh, well, I, I mean, in terms of collaboration, we do have more and more fintechs partnering with banks, you know, particularly on the infrastructure side, you know, and with AI, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily say fintech collaboration, but AI, yep. you know, um, startup collaboration with banks is obviously going to be a big thing. Um, you're also going to see um, banks acquiring fintechs, fintechs acquiring banks, you know, sort of this uh, cross-pollination to some extent. Uh, um, you know, in, in specific areas where there are specific capabilities that you want to get, like if you want to do buy now, pay later, rather than 
um, you know, completely reinventing the wheel there. You might, uh, you know, integrate with a, with a partner on that front. On the wallet side, you're not going to build a competing wallet to compete with Apple Pay. You really have to be integrated with Apple. So there are right. plen- plenty of, you know, tech and fintech type collaborations that um, are necessary for you to be uh, present and connected to customers in the digital sphere. And, you know, that's even before we start talking about central bank digital currencies or the metaverse or, you know, um, AI-based agency and so forth. So let's take a short break and recognize the sponsors of this podcast. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Microsoft. See how Microsoft can help unlock new opportunities at speed and scale through innovative business processes, delivering differentiated customer experiences across channels, innovating new products and services, and redefining new ways of thinking. Find out more at Microsoft.com backslash financial services. So welcome back to Banking Transform. So I'm joined today by Brett King, good friend, been in the business longer than I have in many ways, and, and truly is a person that we look at for a view into the future, but also with grounding in the present. So we're exploring what we expect to see next year, but even further out in the future in 2030, 2050. So Brett, can you expand a little bit around the idea of responsible banking? and the importance of this in this current client and how much we have from the standpoint of financial institutions walking the walk as opposed to just talking the talk. Well, first of all, we're both the OGs, dude. So <laughs> I'll say that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we are good friends. So, yes. um, and we've maintained that, um, you know, so uh, I remember the early days getting you on hosting, breaking banks and stuff like that. We, we've done a lot of stuff together. It's hey, fantastic. I wouldn't have this but, podcast today if it wasn't for you. So thank you. Um, I, I thank you for saying so. Um, in terms of um, responsible banking, I, I would start with a very basic premise, which is what is the main thing a bank should do for you? particularly as a customer, but the same is true of a, a business. What's the number one thing a bank should do for you as a customer? And I would argue philosophically, not from a regulatory perspective, um, is that the bank should help you save and manage your money. Yep. And we lost sight of that a long time ago in um, the banking system globally. If you look um, since the 1970s, since the emergence of credit cards, there was an epiphany that credit access was where the money was to be made for, uh, especially in retail banking. So pushing people to spend more money so they could increase their credit utilization is a fairly common aspect of banks. So we have cashback rewards for using a credit card. We have airline miles and airline benefits for using a credit card, you know. Um, and so we are increasingly have this posture where spend, spend, spend is um, the approach that we push from a product and revenue perspective as a bank, when actually it should be exactly the opposite for a consumer, which is we should just help you save money. Yep. We should help you manage your money. And so this is what I would say is AI's biggest contribution is that it's creating the smart bank account. It is is creating a bank account that will help you manage your money and your AI will be on your side, right? Your AI will be saying, don't use your credit card. Don't don't use credit. You don't need to. These are the other options available to you. Um, and that, I think, it, it, you know, as at a basic element, helping you manage your cash flow, helping you um, understand your goals and how micro decisions, like how many times you go and buy a Starbucks coffee every week, how those sorts of things are affecting your overall financial health and sort of managing that. Now, um, the, the, the problem of a smart bank account that really helps you manage your money in that way for banks is it destroys all of their current product suite. It yeah. destroys their current revenue model. And for many banks, that will immediately make most of their retail banking customers unprofitable from a conventional viewpoint. Um, And so you will see many banks who, um, you know, have to make this shift, eliminating all but the most high net worth customers because of the margin and a lot of the lower to middle income, um, you know, customers shifting to um, rails like wallet systems and so forth. 
you know, so that that's my guess, right? Is yeah. that there is that sort of you know, banks need to have that cultural shift that your bank account needs to help you save money, and to do so, it means a complete rethink of the the product model and the revenue model in the bank. It's it's pretty pretty significant shift, right? Well, yeah, the shift actually gets more towards the investment model where you you pay for a value transfer of of showing empathy and tr- providing value to me. You know, I, I right. will pay for a financial institution's knowledge into how to manage my money better based on what they've learned about me in the past and what they know about me in the future. Yeah. And, you know, we pay, we pay $140 a year for Amazon. And yet, yeah. I'd be hard pressed for anybody to say what they really get over and above what a non-prime customer yeah. gets. But the reality is, nobody gets rid of it, and and it's because yeah. there's trust, there's an empathy feel from the the Amazon team, there's the feeling like you you've gotten to know me, and I I trust the fact that you're you're managing my data well, which which financial institutions have lost that, and you know it's no longer I want to work with the bank that's closest to me because right now it doesn't matter where that financial institution is located, but I really do want to work with a financial institution that seems to be looking out for my well being or building products that I really need. And I don't care if they charge for them, if I'm getting a value back that's greater than the cost. You know, when you look at overall digital transformation and when you look at the human element, everything else, what excites you about what can happen in the future of banking today? It, it, it's it's obviously a very big open question, but if we sort of limit it to the next five years, um, the, the reality is we're already starting to see some of this occurring. In, you know, look at Latin America. Nubank is now the largest bank in Latin America. Yeah. You know, 85, 90 million customers. In, in we a ba- matter of less than a handful of years. Yeah. It's yeah, eight, eight years. Yep. Eight years. Yeah. Um, and then uh, yeah. we bank in, yeah, we bank in Shenzhen. Um, you know, again, uh, nine years. They, they first yeah. account was opened April 2015. So, yeah, eight years, yep. you know, but they, they obviously started the tech earlier. You know, 380 million, probably 400 million customers by now. Um, so if you want to look at all of the fastest growing financial institutions in the world, they're all digital. Yeah. So that means in five years' time, we've seen significant market share. Look at TransferWise, sorry, Wise, you know, and um, all of the, the, the dominance that they have in terms of um, the cross-border uh, transfers, you know, and remittance market, you know, out of Europe in particular. Um, you know, so... Market share is already changing around these these organizations. So, so I think in, in five years' time, you are seeing lots of different organizations giving people choice in terms of what we would traditionally call banking that aren't banks, right. right? That aren't traditional banks. They don't have a traditional core system. They haven't gone the traditional charter route. They may eventually, for regulatory reasons or growth reasons, um, but you know the that what what is a bank has been radically changed, you know. Um, they, the, and, and I think this just gets weirder and weirder as, as the future goes on because you may have an AI bank launch in sometime in the next 10 or 15 years as an example that, um, you know, how do you license a fully artificial intelligence bank? You know, um, like how do you regulate that? Yeah. Like we don't even have the start of the the regulatory um, standards that might be required to regulate an algorithm as a bank that has a banking license. How do you give an algorithm a banking license? Well, you still have to have a corporation and you need capital adequacy and all of those regular things. But all you know, a lot of those metrics that we had in the past, which was critical to create a healthy bank. You know, actually, the the biggest benefit and the biggest risk is now this algorithm algorithm itself. So, yeah. you know, yeah. and you know, this requires regulators to have highly technical um, understanding and capabilities. It actually requires regulators to be tech organizations themselves, which you know we're clearly not in that situation as uh, as yet. So, um, in answer to your question, I see that that. The traditional banking infrastructure, inclu- including the regulation, continues to get attacked mercilessly by these emergent properties right. and these emergent models. And the markets that best adapt to this in terms of their regulation, in terms of their openness and their ability to um, absorb experimental models and things like that are those that, you know, 
mature as an economy um, fastest and and in a most the, the the most productive manner. So, you know, like uh, at a macro basis, we're moving from you know a situation with highly bureaucratic bureau, bureaucratic government systems and lots of these old paper based systems that have been retrofitted onto computers and things like that to autonomous government. You know, autonomous markets, what I would call smart economies of the future, which are highly automated, mm-hmm. and the largest economies of the 2050s are going to be highly autonomous economies. So the more resistance there is to that autonomy and that high level of automation which, you know, is a way to keep government big, you know, um, then, uh, you know, you, you have uh, significant problems in terms of, um, you know, decade-long development as, as an economy itself. It makes it much, much harder to compete. Uh, it also makes, uh, res- you, know, you know, resource utilization and all of those things much more difficult to manage, um, you know, moving forward. So you retain a level of complexity in the system that you just don't need moving right. forward. That's, that's the key issue, right? So, so what emerging technology do you, that's currently under the radar, do you see that could be transformative as we get towards 2030, let's say? Uh, you know, um, I, I think there's a, a few philosophical changes happening in the 2030s. Um, I, I do think that you're going to start to see a lot more smart contract activity. Um, so smart contracts, uh, uh, the AI-based components by which we run business, commerce, and marketplaces in the future. So you know how it happens today. You have, a, um, you know, you have your company. You have vendors, you know, or yeah. suppliers, and you have clients. And right now, today, those relationships are defined by a contractual arrangement. Sometimes it's a very simple contractual arrangement. You just go and buy some stuff off their store, right? Sometimes it's more complex, such as you know, um, distributorship agreements and um, and so forth, right? You know, real partnerships. But that starts to get implemented in code. You know the rules by which you get paid, and um, the you know the order the, the, as many elements as we can for automation in that. So maybe autonomous delivery of packages, and you know things like that. O- ordering that's uh, done um, and managed by an algorithm um, or two algorithms talking together. Those sort of things are managed by smart contracts. And um, there's no bank in the US that I'm aware of right now that has smart contract infrastructure. Maybe right. JP Morgan Chase with some of the work they've done on tokenization and so forth. You know, so it may not be fair to say no bank has it. But well, and, and, uh, and but it is yeah. emerging elsewhere. I mean, right. IBM is starting to put things in place and others. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, so um, that's that's um, you know a primary element we're going to be experimenting with to create sort of dynamic autonomous business uh, operations and and so forth. That's and that um, that has implications because. You know, U.S. dollars don't really work on smart contracts the way a central bank digital currency does. Because if I send your U.S. dollars out with an AI-based agent, it's gone forever. Right. Whereas with a central bank digital currency, if an AI agent makes a mistake, you can roll it back as long as both parties agree. As an example, right? You've got that traceability and auditability and and so forth that you have. By the time we create enough smart infrastructure around the U.S. dollar to make it work like a CBDC. It is a CBDC, right? So, um, you know, a lot of people saying we don't want the CBDC in, in the US because it enables tracking and, you right. know, and control over bank accounts and so forth. Well, you know, at some point the US has to decide, does it want to be the world's leading economy and use automation to uh, to keep that status? Or are they going to let, um, you know, that moniker of being the world's largest economy go to someone like China because of their automation? So, um 2030 at one point seems a long way away, but on the other hand, it, it, it's very close. Do you see the, the way we do banking changing between now and 2030 where maybe we're not doing it on a phone, we maybe are doing it on another device or another way, or there's some new technology that's being introduced right now that will, it's hard to embrace. Yeah, probably the most... Um Obvious one it will be, um, you know, uh, improvements, rapid improvements in, in voice interaction, 
yeah. you know, with your bank account. So you'll be able to just tell your bank account what you need to do. Yeah. Like for example, oh, hey, bank account, you know, can you, uh, can you check if I paid my uh, car loan payment this month or something like that? Yeah. You know, those types of interactions. Um, you know, that, that's probably the most obvious area over the next few years. But the other area is um, all of the fastest growing FIs, again, you know, are those that are digitally enabled, digital acquisition. So here's the thing is we're going to, by 2030, you're going to see quite a market share shift in the US where the biggest banks are those that are really digitally competent and um, yeah. those that haven't made that switch. You know, if, if you are still requiring a signature on a piece of paper in 2030, you are going or to- Or a driver's license, have, yeah. Right. Right, your business is going to is, has has shrunk to half its size yep. of, of today potentially. Yep. Um, branches in sometime around twenty twenty seven, branches will hit half of the peak in the United States. In the UK, it's far less than that. They're down to about a quarter of the branches that they once had. That trend, there is nothing that we see in um, the future to reverse that trend. So right. again, if you're a bank that's relying on a customer coming into a branch, um, a lot of that market share is going to shift away to uh, banks that can onboard customers digitally. And we saw that happening during the pandemic. As yeah. we talked about yesterday on your podcast, it already is. It's just that yeah, banks absolutely. haven't recognized it. You know, it's it's right. the silent attrition is a is a, my, upon us now. It's it's just really interesting. You know, Brett, you're a voracious writer. You're writing all the time. You're on the road all the time, also visiting organizations across the world. What are you writing right now? What are you working on? Ah, well, we're working on a project together. Yes, um, so it's uh, called Branch Today Gone Tomorrow. Hopefully this will be out uh, in the first or second quarter of next year. And it is um, really a definitive look at branch uh, utilization globally, at looking at um, you know a, a dozen or more um, economies and seeing the way branch uh, utilization and branch traffic has changed. Um, and really helping people understand that the era of the branch as the primary channel for banking is over. And um, we know this because in 2013, the density of branches globally started to decline, according to World Bank data. Yep. And we know that from looking at all of the major markets that the number of branches globally started to decline around 2017 for the first time in 500 years. So this shift in posture means that banks have to have that that um, mindset shift that if you are still going to have branches, um, and regulators need this shift as well, but yep. if you are still going to maintain branches, their primary role moving forward is to support digital. That's not, it's no, you can't think of them as, yeah, you can't think of them as the primary yep. channel and digital as secondary because all of the fastest growth is coming from digital. Uh, and so the more you rely on branches in that scenario, the less growth you have, the more market share you give up to competitors who are digital. So you have to really say, all right, well, how is branch is going to work to support digital. And there are um, good opportunities for that. You know, the genius bar concept, you know, the the, the more technical help. I, you know, I often say in five years' time, if uh, you go into a branch, probably the number one reason you have to go into a branch in five years is your tech isn't working. Yeah. Yeah. Can you help me fix my app? Yep. You know, I can't send, uh, you know, I can't use my uh, wallet with the card in the app for some reason, you know, whatever the case may be. Yep. Um, so again, you know, this requires a different level of thinking about the skills and resources in branch and, you know, even the size of the branch. Telewindow becomes far less important than just having someone with presence, you know, with a iPad or something yeah. like that to help you. So that's sort of the exa example of what's ha happening in Branch Today Gone Tomorrow. I'm also working on a science fiction series. Wow. Um, which I don't want to talk too much about yet, but there's get some really interesting moves in that respect. And um, the next book I'll do next year that I've sort of started um, working at is because, you know, you and I both have extraordinary access to the, the fintech OGs. Yeah. Um, is I wanted to tell the story of the emergence of challenger banking around the world. You know, David oh, Ballas from yeah. New Bank, uh, you know, yep. Tom Blomfield at Monzo, and Anne from Starling, you know, uh, Henry Marr at uh, WeBank. And basically, Greg, get Greg King from Moving. 
of course, um, and get these guys to tell us their story as founders. And so the t- the working title of that book is The Rise of the Challenges, right? And that includes also, you know, the mobile wallet, yep. um, you know, structures and stuff like that. And that is, I really wanted to document that, that, hi- that period of history where banking f- sort of really fundamentally changed and the and the trailblazers that helped us yeah. uh, through that process because we do have that for Silicon Valley, um, you know, in terms of uh, the rise of Silicon Valley um, and we do have disparate information about, you know, individual challenger banks and so forth, but no one's really put together a historical perspective on the rise of all these different challenger models and, you know, um, what it will ultimately mean. So that's something that I'll be working on next year. And, and wherever you are at the time, I, I know that sometimes we, we touch base in coffee shops globally and it's, uh, you are, if nothing else, everywhere and anywhere. So, well, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm, I am starting to rethink that a little bit in terms of, um, you know, whether I need to slow down the travel a bit, I'm not recovering as, as oh, quickly as I, I used to from the jet well. yep. lag and stuff. Yep. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Yep. Um, you know, and so I am sort of rethinking that to some extent, but, you know, having said that I'm, uh, I'm blessed to uh, have really generated, um, you know, a global audience um, and um, global demand as a thought leader. You know, I do a lot of work with central banks around the world now, sort of helping them. You know, I'm on the boards of some new fintechs and startups around the world. Um, And, you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, in the last five years, uh, including during the pandemic, you know, I've done 60 countries or so where I've toured and been able to talk about you know, what's happening in this space. But we there needs to be antagonists, antagonists, yeah. you know. Yep. We need people like you and I out there helping, um, you know, the, the traditional players see the rate of change and what's happening so they at least have enough warning to be able to adapt and make the changes they need. Yeah. As we've seen in many other industries, you know, um, publications with with Amazon and Kindle versus the bookstore and, you know, Blockbuster versus Netflix and so forth. Rarely do incumbent organizations survive this uh, transition. It normally is new new entrants. And the same is happening in banking. You know, we can see today that the world's number one bank account is a mobile wallet. It's not a debit card issued from a bank branch. That's already happened, right? And But the banks still think like, well, we've got all this money, you know, we're still making all this profit. So we we must be we, we must, must be doing be okay. it right yep right but in many ways the the you know pendulum has already shifted brett thank you as always it's been a while since we've been on the show together great, i really yeah, really yeah. glad to have you on the show and keep up to date on what you're doing um safe travels and uh have good holidays as they're coming up thank you brother Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, the top podcast in retail banking and the winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. We appreciate the support we've received to make this endeavor a success. If you enjoy what we're doing, please take some time to show some love in the form of a review. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the research we're doing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our senior producer, Leah Haslidge, audio engineer, Chris Fafalius, and video producer, Will Pritz. If you've not already done so, please remember to subscribe to Banking Transformed on both your favorite podcast app and on the YouTube channel for more thought-provoking discussions on the intersection of finance, technology, and leadership. Until next time, remember, keep innovating and transforming. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.